Hello folks and welcome to Sigma Sports Presents Matt Stevens Unplugged with me, Matt Stevens. And today, my guest is Jake Stewart. So what can I say about Jake? Well, he's a young British rider with the potential for a huge future ahead of him. He's gone through the ranks at Groupama FDJ from their development squad all the way to world tour level. And in our chat, he tells me why he feels sorry for his neighbours and explains why he should never move house in the middle of the racing season. We also have an in-depth chat about Coventry God Cake, a delicacy neither of us had ever heard of. So, want to invent your own imaginary cake, stick your feet up with a cup of tea, and enjoy the pod. Hello, and welcome. Are you ready? Because it's that time again. Matt Stevens unplugged by Sinus Jake Stewart is in the springtime of his career. A young rider with a bright future, he's come through the ranks at Groupama FDJ, making his debut for the UCI World Team at Gent-Wavelgem in 2020. A real highlight of his earlier career was coming an impressive second at Omloop Newsblad, just behind David Ballerini. And if that was an indication of the kick we can expect from his sprint going forward, he'll be on the top step of many a podium to come. But if he could travel through time, to where and when would he go? There's only one way to find out, folks. So strap on your shoulder pads. It's time for episode Carol Nerf, the Jake Stewart episode. Check it out. Well, Jake, um, first and foremost, mate, thank you very much indeed for joining us on um, Matt Stevens Unplugged. How are you? Yeah, good. No, it's nice to be here. How have you? um, Can you first, first off, just describe the room you're in and what part of the world you're in, just so uh, we can set a nice bit of context for the listeners? Right, so uh, part of the world I'm in is uh, back home, just outside Manchester, in uh, in the High Peak, little village called Birchvale. Oh, lovely! And, uh, yeah, currently sat in uh, our spare room. That's not a spare room. Okay. It's uh, currently a dressing room slash turbo room slash bike storage room. And uh, if I look to my left, I'm looking out the window into uh, into our garden, which after Tour de Suisse, I ended up digging up half of it. Oh yeah, um, yeah. It's quite a big regret, actually. It's uh, yeah. We've got. I I actually dug up about a foot of soil, um, <laughs> and underneath it was is just a massive concrete slab. Oh, and uh, yeah. So we. I didn't know if it was like an air raid shower or whatnot when we were digging it up. So um, yeah, we didn't really get any further because uh, it's a massive concrete slab that we just can't shift. So there's just a giant hole slash crater in the bottom of the garden. So. <laughs> Um, it's, it's not a very nice view, actually, if, if I'm honest. That's a little bit, a uh, little bit slightly depressing because the Peak Ditch is a beautiful place, yeah. um, and you've yeah, kind yeah, of just yeah. like. Mm. I mean, if you don't mind me yeah. asking, Jake, um, um, again, this podcast from time to time will we we'll go off on tangents, which is great. Um, why we? Why did you just come back from the Tour de Suisse and decide to dig a big hole in the garden? What was the purpose of the digging? Right. So I had a, I had a week off the bike anyway. I'm actually looking out the window. I haven't actually really sat in this this room and actually looked out the window for very long. And it's, uh, I feel sorry for the neighbours that have to look onto the back of our garden. But um, yeah, so um, no, came back from Tour de Suisse, had a week off the bike. Um, and uh, I hadn't, so we moved in February and I hadn't mowed the lawn since February. Okay. Um, and obviously with the amount of sun and rain that we had, it was a, uh, I'd say the grass was probably about two foot tall. Blimey. So I took a strimmer to it yeah. before Tour de Suisse and uh, and mowed it. Um, and then my girlfriend sent me a photo halfway through the Tour de Suisse. Um, our garden basically 
was brown and dead. Um, <laughs> and then from there, came back from Tour de Suisse. We were doing some weeding in the garden because it's um, it's uh, it sounds like I'm just living in just a, a dump at the moment. But um, <laughs> yeah, um, did, did some weeding in the garden and I had the spade out and uh, there's a load of like slabs underneath the well, like on on top of the grass, but kind of underneath a little layer of grass. Yeah. So I started digging up these slabs, well, digging around the grass on these slabs because I was thinking, oh, maybe we've got a patio at the bottom of the garden. Okay. And uh, yeah, it kind of, yeah, we got a bit carried away. Um, Ended up digging up about a foot of soil. And honestly, I'll send you a photo after, but it it is honestly a good foot and a half of soil that we dug up. Blimey. And uh, it, it's just concrete, yeah. So. Oh, God. So, so um, what, what, what are the kind of short to medium term plans then um, with your garden? Are you going to have to adjust your race program so you can get the garden sorted? <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. So um, obviously, if, if, the, if a concrete slab had turned out to be a patio, then we'd be living the dream currently because we'd have a nice patio at the bottom of the garden to enjoy the weather. Um, but yeah, the, uh, yeah, we're kind of wanting to, well, the garden's just not flat actually. It's um it's on a real steep kind of incline. Right. Um so it needs flattening. And that, that was kind of the, the ah, thought process behind okay. it. Right. Okay. Um so yeah, it needs flattening, a deck and put down. We want to get a shed in there for the bikes and whatnot, because the uh bikes are just in the house at the moment and it's not not ideal trying to carry bikes up and down the stairs between road rides for um yeah, in a little Two bed terrace houses, as you can imagine, the stairs are pretty steep. Yeah, I mean, I I, I get a bit of a health risk. Yeah, I, I get a great deal of pleasure though. For even when I was racing, um, I, I used to love doing the garden. Uh, I really did. It's it's quite. It takes you to a kind of different place, doesn't it? Um, you know, yeah, from a mental um, perspective, you know, and it, and it's it feels like you're kind of slightly exercising, but not too strenuously. It's a real calming kind of thing. I'd love gardening. Yeah, I, I mean, digging that that foot of soil was was uh, actually quite strenuous. <laughs> proper workout <laughs> but i mean yeah i mean i'm by no means green fingered so uh yeah well there's a, there's actually an apple tree in the garden as well which our next door neighbor planted before we moved here um and that's going to be coming up soon because it's just it's slap bang in the middle of the garden right it's useless actually <laughs> um, brilliant yeah so oh well but yeah i mean so this house that i'm describing obviously at the moment it just sounds like it's an absolute Tall. right but it is actually quite a nice you know it's a little little terrace house it's our first house together with my girlfriend in there yeah, a little two-bed terrace um, and yeah just kind of getting bits and pieces done as we as we as we go along but i mean that's a note to myself is to never move house during the season again yeah it's um, um I, i've done that before and left it all to my yeah. to my previous wife to do and it wasn't i wasn't i just literally we moved yeah I, the morning of of moving house i left for a race and came yeah, and did, came back a week later. <laughs> that's probably why it's his previous wife, isn't it? If you want, it could be, mate. Let's not <laughs> let's not dwell on that too much. Uh, but yeah, um, a bit of a shame. But anyway, mate. So um, great to yeah. Thanks again for coming on the pod, and, and thanks for so deeply setting the context because everybody now has got the scene set. So we know where you are. We know you've got a kind of weird apple tree that serves no purpose, and that your garden's a bomb site. But more importantly, mate, what a what a cracking debut season in the world tour it's been i mean um we'll, we'll delve specifically into a bit more detail uh, no doubt later but you must be really pleased with the way things have gone this year because i know you you kind of signed early for the team from being in the under 23 squad but to hit the ground like the way the way you did this year has been you know it's been fantastic yeah i think um yeah it's a bit of a surprise kind of coming into the season 
especially with Omleep. But um, yeah, previ- like performed before Omleep at uh, a Bissage anyway. So yeah, it kind of um, I knew I was running on good form coming into Omleep, and then uh, yeah, I actually moved house the week of Omleep. Oh um, right. So it wasn't even really the best prep. I don't think my coach was very happy about that. But um, right. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, it was. Um, it was a nice surprise, I guess. But I kind of, I knew the work that I'd put in over the over the winter and whatnot, and uh, I knew that I was going well anyway before it. So um, to to have good legs there was not a surprise. But maybe the result at the end of it was a uh, was a nice um, nice way to start the season. And how within the team? I mean, obviously you got a, a two year contract off off the back of that that the, the wonderful ride you did that the previous year while you were you were. Well, you weren't really stagiaire, were you? I mean, because of the new UCR rules, it means that the under-23, well, feeder team riders can actually spend, in certain races, ride with the World Tour um, riders, which is a, a, I think is a lovely rule, isn't it? It's a really, really good opportunity to um, for you to ride the bigger races. But um, your standing within the team from after your result at Omloop must have significantly changed the way the riders looked at you, the way they... I mean, how did that change for you? Yeah, I think, well... Obviously, I signed. Obviously, last year was real. Uh, it was a strange season, anyway, with COVID and whatnot. Yeah. And uh, started the season. Like I started the season, my season with the World Tour team, anyway. Yeah. At uh, Voltel Gav, and then did a couple of races with the Conti team, and then it was locked down. Came back to the UK, spent a load of time back in the UK, and then started the season again, um, doing this kind of stagiaire role with with the team. Um, I did like Tour de Lan, Tour de Limousin, a couple of other races. And then yeah, actually signed with them in the October, going into the into the classics campaign, just because there was there were short on guys for the classics, just because of injuries, illness, COVID, stuff like that. So um, yeah, kind of signed premature in October. Yeah, did did what was the spring classics in the autumn with the team, um, and then yeah, like uh, yeah, kind of obviously then had off season and whatnot, and then. Didn't even have a team training camp because of the rules of course, from yeah. the UK to Spain and all that crap. So yeah. like, I didn't actually see the team, like the World Tour team, until going out to my first race, really. Wow. Um, and then, yeah, obviously did Bessage and it was, it was yeah, a point pro race, but it was basically a World Tour field by by the standards of the race. Yeah. Um, was fourth on GC there. And that kind of, like boosted my confidence within the team because it kind of gave me a a platform where I've I've performed well and you know riders kind of gave me a bit more respect as that neo pro um, and then yeah I went into the classics and did the classics with uh with the team and pulled off that second arm loop and that was kind of it felt like a big shift in mentality towards me as a yeah. neo pro yeah um but yeah, I think that was always going to. It's always understandable, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was a, a big surprise. I mean, you clearly. I mean, I say it was a big surprise. I mean, you, you, there's no fluke there. Or it, it, but I mean, going into that race, looking at the lineup. I mean, Stefan Kung and uh, Duchesne, uh, Jeanette Scottson, Ludwigson, yourself, and Leinhard. What was the plan going into that race? I'm, I'm kind of keen on. Um, was it? Were you the protected rider, or what was the plan going into Het Newsblad? Yeah, I yeah, I was never the protected rider going into Newsblad. Um, right. So you have the um so you have, you have them fairly early on. I can't even remember what they're called now. Um the climbs fairly early on. And then you come onto that huge road before you turn right up onto the Wolvenberg. Yep. Um so it's the big road into Udenard, the one that you ride about 
50 times in a classic season. Yes, another one you mean. Yeah. Is coming off it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, it was on that huge road heading towards into Udenard. You turn right into a really narrow road to hit the bottom of Wolvenberg. And then you turn right at Wolvenberg. And then you come up onto the uh, the cobbled section at the top of Wolvenberg and left over the top. And um, yeah, the, the team basically said to me, position uh, Kung and Jinyats into the bottom of Wolvenberg. So I hit the front on the uh, on that big old road before you turned right, put in a pretty big turn um, into the bottom of that right-hander and basically parked just as we went into that right-hander. But um, yeah, Jinyats and Kung were within the top 10 guys. So that was kind of my job done and uh, placed them well. And yeah, the team were happy with me. But um, yeah, it hit Wolvenberg. Um, wasn't well positioned, but I mean the race didn't kick off, so I kind of just floated my way over Wolvenberg onto the cobbles over the top. Yep. Um, found myself in a good position and kind of, yeah. From there, I just made sure I was positioning myself well throughout the day, and then also just you know was there for Kung and Jinyets if they needed me to position them going into the bottom of any, any climbs or whatnot. And um, yeah, a couple of climbs later on, I think it's thirty odd k to go. As a, a sequence of two or three climbs, um, got distance over the top of them, came back on, um, and then yeah, you know, once I got to the bottom of Bosberg, I had the DS in my ear saying, you know, all you need to do is get over Bosberg and we'll ride for ride for Jake for the sprint because it was just wow. it was a smaller smaller bunch sprint. So yeah, it was. Um, I think everyone was kind of surprised to see me there, and especially as a near pro. Yeah, I mean, it was because it was a really, really. I mean, the the last K, especially the last six, seven hundred meters, was is almost like a tour series crit, wasn't it? It was really a really quite technical run into the line. I mean, obviously, you got your position absolutely spot on. I mean, once you crossed the line, did you kind of believe it? It must have taken a little while to to sink in because you know it's such a such a big race um, with such a hitter field. I mean, that when did you kind of finally realize or? When when did it finally kind of sink in that you got such a significant result? I think yeah, I think like, as soon as I crossed the line, I was like, it it was <laughs> kind of bittersweet because I was like, I could have done so much more there. Yeah. Um. Because yeah, I mean yeah, like you said, like the last I think it's like literally the last six hundred meters, you've got a right and a left little chicane, and then you've got two hundred meters to the finish. Yeah. Um. And I'd been following. It's a fairly big road into into that like left and right and corner. It's a uh, it's like a dual carriageway on one side and just a single lane on the other side. And um, yeah, I was following Kung and Jinyets into the bottom there and got misplaced off their wheel. So kind of okay to go out to fight my way back onto the wheel um, and literally just found myself in the perfect place, 500 metres to go, going into that right-hander. Yep. I was behind uh, Jinyets, who was a couple of wheels behind the uh, De Kernick guys and then came out of that last left-hander, kicked. And uh, yeah, I was just making up so much, so much speed at the finish on Ballerini. It was kind of like, uh, yeah, if it, if I hadn't have almost fallen asleep in that last K and stayed on that wheel, then maybe you know it could have been a different result altogether. And then uh, yeah, it was kind of bittersweet. But at the end of the day, um, second in my first World Tour Classics race was there. Uh, it's not too bad, is it? Yeah, it's not too shabby, really, is it? It's not too bad. I mean, what's it like being? I mean, I mean, there's obviously. A group arm F is is a team that have been around even when I when I was when I was a pro like 20, 22 years ago. It's a team that's been along around for a long, long time. Obviously, um, Mark Mario is the, is the main man there. What's what's it like being as part of that squad? What's the kind of uh, atmosphere? What's the kind of uh, what's the culture like? Are you? Although you, you didn't have a lot of opportunities to uh, to see the team early on, but what's it like being a part of that squad? Because every World Tour team, every every Conti team, now they have their own kind of identity, don't they? I mean, what's it like being a part of that squad? 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, French team, a lot of people always say classically French team. And uh, like FD, Gripama FDJ certainly is that classically French team. Like I'd never be able to put my finger on what makes it a classically French team. Yeah. But, you know, if I say to you, it's a classically French team, you'll be like, ah, yeah. I yeah. Know what you, mean, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of what I meant. But um, no, yeah, it's um, it, it's a nice atmosphere because obviously, you know, that, that French, the French feel to it kind of gives it a nice family feel. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone's looked after well and, uh, yeah, you, you make some nice relationships in the team, but, um, yeah, it's, you know, that, that French feel towards it is, is kind of what makes it unique in this day and age anyway, just cause, you know, most of the teams now were, well, nearly all world tour teams now are English speaking, aren't they? And albeit they're based in Belgium or whatever, or Holland and, and stuff like that, the, you know, the main spoken language is, is, is English, but in, uh, Groupama FDJ, it's French and that kind of keeps that special emphasis on it being a French team and you know it's Marc Madio's team so yeah it is really yeah. interesting I mean it's a it's a not hard, hard to I, I kind of like that like you said there's the internal the internationalization of the sport has meant as you say that even when, even when you look at like the UE teams you know that, um, that generally speaking they they English is the spoken language in the vast majority of, of squads so how have you kind of got to grips with the language are you uh, are you learning fast or did, did, i mean was it kind of sink or swim or have they did you do any kind of uh, kind of french lessons on, on the way in or had you learned quite a bit in the uh, in the feeder team yeah i think um obviously if i'd come straight into the world tour team it would kind of be a sink or swim situation yeah um obviously in the feeder team just because it was so much more international anyway um there was only three or four french boys albeit all the staff are french you know, it was a lot more international. It was kind of like if the, if the staff couldn't speak English, then actually they was in a worse position than the riders not being able to speak French. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, kind of, you know, the Conti team was mainly uh, English speaking and you was learning French throughout and picking up pieces here. But, um, yeah, certainly in the World Tour team, if you came into the World Tour team straight out of an English team, you'd need to be able to speak some degree of French because yeah. uh, it'd just be a bit of a bit of a struggle otherwise. But, um, yeah, kind of like... I mean, what well, I did two years with the Conti team, and then this is my third year now with the team. So, yeah, it's certainly getting there with the French. It's not, um, it's not as fluent as it could be, but yeah, I can, I can get by and communicate with them pretty well. So that's and, all you really need, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's what they. I mean, to you feel more part of the team when you. It's a great when I, the when I was racing as an amateur, living in France. Um, it took me a while to get. To, I went to like evening classes to learn a little bit of French. So I didn't take it up at school, but um, they really. You know, regardless of how bad your French is, the fact that you're trying to actually, you know, tr- trying to in- trying to speak the language, I think it endears yourself really well to the squad. They kind of embrace that, don't you? And and then the fact that they're not going to make make fun of you or anything like that, you you kind of you learn with a lot more confidence. You don't feel like there's no kind of fear, is there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Like, I mean, yeah, yeah. If 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 you're trying with the language and they can see you're trying with it, and uh, yeah, you, you pick it up so much faster anyway. But I mean, to be fair, like this week at Tour de Wallonie, um, there was me, Single Dam and uh, Fabi, who were the international boys and the rest of the team was French. Right. And uh, actually, yeah, this week has probably been the first week where I've actually sat at the dinner table and uh, been able to follow stories that they're telling. And yeah, we had actually quite a nice group in, in Tour de Wallonie and one of the boys 
that was riding is retiring in three weeks time so you know he was real chilled and he was just telling stories all week and he had his son stitches like in stitches at the dinner table <laughs> and that was kind of like like this was like the first time i've actually felt like yeah i can understand what's going on here and you feel you do feel more part of the team than, than you would do when you're you know just going to dinner having your dinner saying a couple of words in french and going off to bed if you can actually have a conversation and understand the stories and have a good laugh then it, it makes it a lot easier on the team yeah no it's, it's massively once you've yeah, I, I found the same thing because the dinner table or the breakfast table, to me, uh, as well as outside of the team meetings and actually the race, that's the place where you get to know people, isn't it? I mean, in a, and I guess this day and age, you know, although I'm not in a team anymore, you go to hotels and you see a lot of people on their phones and stuff. But I know that some teams have like a no phones policy, don't they, um, at the table? What, what's the score in, uh, in, in Group Armour? Yeah, so, I mean, since I've been in the World Tour team, they haven't actually had the, uh, the no phones rule, but... Um, yeah, a couple, I've heard stories of a couple of years, only two or three years ago, I think it was. Um, so actually, it was this boy that was in, in Wallonia with us, Mika Delage. Yep. Um, he's one of like the patrons of the team. And uh, yeah, one of his rules was uh, basically every rider at the start of the year agreed to a no phone rule. And it was basically, if you take out your phone at the dinner table, whether it's looking at the time or anything, you put 50... 50 euros in the middle of the table every time 50 euros blimey that's yeah. punchy it's a big old hit but <laughs> the uh the the sack like the uh oh what would even the word be um ah oh, i can't think of the word but like if if you wanted to opt out of this 50 euros every time okay basically you put 100 euros in at the start of the year and you could get your phone out at any point during the uh wow. during the season on the dinner table but I mean, you know, you've got some guys that are pretty cheap anyway, so they, they would never put in a hundred euros and then they'd get caught out for 50 euros, you know, twice a month and suddenly they are put in a hundred euros and at the end of the year it's 500 euros they put in. That's really, I quite, I quite yeah. like that. I mean, I don't, I wonder, yeah, yeah I, I wonder what I'd do. hundred, well, yeah, exactly. hundred euros is quite, it's quite a lot of money, isn't it? And you, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. A, it's a, that's, that's food for thought, that is, mate. I mean, but, yeah, I mean, with, with the money that they, they'd accumulated by the end of the year, they'd use that all together to go out or whatever, or like the <laughs> December training camp. When, oh, that's cool. When you can go out and whatnot. So, I mean, it was quite a, quite a nice incentive, actually. But, um, yeah, cool. certainly, uh, I think it's quite a good rule to have, really. You know, yeah. Oh, no, definitely, definitely. I mean, okay, talking about the squad, talking about the kind of the feel within the team, um, what's Mark Maddio like? Because he, from the outside, I, mean, I know him a little bit, um, and I also knew him when I was uh, kind of racing. I think I actually raced against him at the back end of the ninety of the nineteen eighties, actually. Um, and a, you know, an amazingly talented bike rider. But um, he's quite an outspoken manager, isn't he? But he's got certainly got his own way. I mean, how's your kind of perception of him been, and how's your interaction been with uh, with Maddio? Yeah, I think. Um, well, my my first ever interaction with Maddio was. Um, like the the Conti December training camp, the first year that the uh, the development team set themselves up, and uh, the first thing Madio even said to me, you know, it wasn't hello, nothing like that. It was the first thing that he said to me was, we was out on a training ride, we'd stopped for a piss, we was having a bar or whatever. Yeah. And he turned to me and he said, "You're the first British rider that's been in my team since Wiggins." Yeah, of course, yeah. And uh, and he and he turned around, he was like, "No pressure." <laughs> <laughs> Flipping it, yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know that was the first thing he said to me, and. Um, yeah, but kind of, you know, that kind of shook me up a bit actually, because uh, you know it's kind of quite foot, like quite some footsteps to follow in it, really. Blimey, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think the more I've got to know him, you know, he's, um, I think, yeah, he's he's got his he's got his ways, and uh, yeah, when you um, 
when you get to know him, actually, you realise he's probably quite soft. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the exterior that he puts on towards towards uh, the team when you're in in a, in a big group or even to the public is actually he's um, yeah quite strict. But um, yeah, no, is it is a he's a good manager to work with and. Uh, you know, he's, he's always motivated for the next step and moving forward with the team. So yeah. it's, um, I think, it's a nice atmosphere. I think one thing, because I know he's been a little bit kind of not so much ridiculed uh, just by the way he is, how emotionally connected he is. But do you know what? You know, to see that much passion from a manager, it, you know, when, um, although it's sometimes quite unorthodox, almost like, is he all right? Is this guy all right? Is he having a heart attack or something? But I actually love that. I, I love that somebody's willing to wear their heart on their sleeve and really show their love and their care for the for the riders, especially when you know performing like that. I I actually really like Mario because he is he's very old school, but he's not afraid to show how much he cares, and that's really important. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, because obviously, uh, what was it a few years ago at uh, Plonge de Belfi with with Thibaut Pino? Yes. You know, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> like off his head, shouting and screaming, and uh, even before that, I can't remember if I can't remember what ride it was, but he was in the car on a stage win and he was like leaning out of the car smashing on the on the side of the car and all sorts because he was going for the stage win I think was it the tall one yeah. yeah that that was that was Pino again I think was um, it yeah yeah, yeah and yeah. um and I think a lot of people kind of looked at him and thought oh, it's bullshit it's all a show and uh all this but it's a hundred percent not yeah like even even when I was watching it before I was in the team I was like this guy's he's off his head like is this <laughs> Is this a show? Is it what what's going on? But honestly, it's just pure passion. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Flanders last year, um, we'd all had we'd all had a stomach problem before Flanders last year. We was all going absolutely shit on the bike. Yeah. We hadn't eaten for like two days properly, and he was so motivated. And he got in the car in the morning, and he uh, took a caffeine gel from the from the bus, popped a caffeine gel, and he was you know he was <laughs> raring to go. He was like, yeah, he was like. I'm, I'm in the race today like he's like I'm not in, on the bike but I'm in the race and he was like popping his caffeine gel and he, he's dead motivated and it, it's just pure passion and he's yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's nice um, it's nice to be around because it, it really shows how much he actually cares and it, it motivates all of us boys anyway yeah oh that that's really cool mate um hold on a minute can you hear that noise random yeah. question oh, alert mate. <laughs> sorry mate it's all kicking off here um it is time for a oh. random question um yeah sorry um jake uh, as i have to explain to all my guests sorry about that we, I, we've, this, that was the random question generator going off in the corner of my loft uh, so i've right, just okay. been across torn off the bit of paper it's like a like an old style fax machine um nice. and i've got a random question to ask you mate yeah sorry to interrupt your your nice little chat there about Mark about Mark Manio, but I've never seen this question before. So here we go. Um, right, 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 <laughs> right. Okay, here we go. Okay, if you had to inflate a standard twenty five C clincher tire and inner tube using only lung power, how much psi do you estimate you could blow it up to, and would it be enough to get you home? <laughs> That's some question, isn't it? Yeah, I don't. I, th- I think that's that, that's a question you need to be asking to like a mathematician or something. Yeah. Um. Ty- the person to be answering this question is uh, uh what's her name? Anna. Oh, they just won they the just, just, just won the Olympics. Olympics. I bet she- that's who you need to be asking this question. I bet she would know actually. I bet she would. We'll have to get her on the pod to maybe answer yeah. that question. But um, what- I reckon. Well, I mean, it's it's hard enough blowing up a pair of armbands, isn't it, or like an <laughs> inflatable lilo? Yeah. And how much how much PSI do you reckon is in, in something like that? Twenty. 
if even that. No, I don't. I don't think there's even because um, there's not the, oof, five or something like that. I, I don't think there's oh, much shit. pressure at all in that because they're too easy, aren't they? But oof, let, I'm going to answer it. I don't think. I could get any PSI in there. Because you know when you like blow up an inner tube when you're at the side of the road, just so you can seat it in the rim? Yeah. And, I, you know, I can't get it I can't get it to actually go any bigger than just like, I don't think we've got the lung power to get past a certain PSI. So I, I reckon I could probably blow like eight PSI, something like that, I reckon. Are you, what, are you saying when you try and seat the inner tube, you blow it up using your mouth? Yeah. Just, Genuine. Just pop it in, then go, blow it up. Yeah, do that. No, I don't use a pump. Right, I've, I've never done that before. Haven't you? Right, okay, no. Well, no. I'm not advising you to give it a go because you probably will get another stomach infection, especially if you've been riding around well, farmland. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. You wouldn't be able to make it home on it on a uh, no, on a self-inflated, human-powered pump. There's no way, is there? Being your young, being your lungs. Have, have you no, ever had to resort? What's the best MacGyver moment you've ever had? I mean, just leading on from this uh, from this sort of strange question, because I don't think we've got we've got the power to blow up anywhere near enough. So, no. what's the sort of most extraordinarily difficult situation you've been in? And you've had to MacGyver your way out of it, and you've got back that you're most proud of. Oh God! I mean, I've had so many situations out <laughs> on the bike where I've had to call my dad to come and pick me up. But um, I actually th- this winter I had two occasions within a week or maybe even three yeah where i had about six punctures in a week oh my and, god and every time i had to get picked up by my dad <laughs> so uh, the biggest achievement to get home with a mechanical on the back yeah that you've fixed yourself but like in an unorthodox manner like you bodged it that's the word isn't it like a total bodge but it's got you home and you're like Do you know what i'm pr- pretty happy with that so the thing is, I, I, there probably isn't any occasions where that's happened because I'm just not mechanically minded enough to be able to think of a solution. <laughs> so you just pick your phone up and uh, ring your mum and dad. I mean, that's that's fair enough. I mean, that's yeah, that's fair enough. Because yeah. back back in the day, what, what would yours be? It, well, I've, I've had a couple, and I've I've already described one on the podcast, and that was when my handlebars the uh, snapped, um, and they came away from the uh, from the stem. They just sheared off. Um, and so I managed to bind the bars with an inner tube back onto the stem. So it was like having handlebars with suspension built in. <laughs> but, you, but you couldn't get out of the saddle and you couldn't lean. T- so I had to put my body weight towards the back of the bike and then just mm. gently rest my hands on the hoods and I got home. But the bars yeah, were moving. If you, if you hit a pothole, it would be... Uh, oh, yeah. So body weight over the back. But, just, and, but, but then my next favourite one was when... Really weirdly, it's because I didn't really maintain my bike that well back in the back in the early days, and my I was running the sort of old style mechanical no, what was it yeah old style mechanical shifters, and uh, somehow the bosses, the, the, my gears just fell off um, <laughs> the, the the kind of down tube, and ended up in the road. <laughs> so. I was like, "What?" The-? And my mate stopped. We're like, "What are we going to do?" Anyway, not a word of a lie. We were there was a, we were standing in the grass verge, and I saw this bit of tow rope, and it must have been hmm, I don't know six foot long. <laughs> so I got this orange bit of tow rope, which frayed at run in, knotted the end, and basically used tow rope to bind my in a really you know it was six foot of, of rope. I managed to tie them back on all around the frame, tied it all up, and rode thirty miles 
with my gear with my with with my gears being held on. I couldn't change gear with my mm. gears being held on by a bit of tow rope. Um, so that was, I was pretty nice. happy with that, mate. That's probably my best. To be fair, it's, it's not even a, it's not mechanically minded, and it's nothing even to do with the bike. But something that I'm quite proud of that um, actually I didn't even come up with it myself. It was uh, I was out on a ride with Jim Brown, but it was a um, couple of couple of weeks back. You know when like cafes reopened and stuff. Oh yeah. But you had to you had, you have to be wearing a mask to go into the cafe to go and order. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I'd gone out on the bike. We was having a calf stop, but I'd forgotten a mask. And uh, one that Jim Brown came up with actually was. Um, yeah, it's not even my, mine, so I can't take any credit for it. But, um, <laughs> Bit of reflected it, glory, though. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, it was using a, it was using your arm warmer as a mask. Ah. So you'd leave your helmet on, and you you'd take your arm warmer off. Yeah. You'd kind of get either end. So like the arm, so your mouth is in the middle of the arm warmer. Yeah. And then you just tuck the ends of the arm warmer <laughs> through your helmet loops. <laughs> Brilliant. Absolute and, genius. And there you go. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, you've got a mask, but yeah. That's what, Actually, that's not even uh, something I came up with. So. No, but I tell I you what, that's a lovely it. handy tip for anybody listening because yeah. there are a few places you still do do need to wear masks. And so if you do forget, yeah, do that. The, I, I, I found myself in exactly the same situation a few weeks back. I, went, I rode to Windsor, went to get a coffee, and it was like, oh, I couldn't go in. So basically use my gilet. Um, uh, I look like a gunslinger walking in though. So it's like, yeah, but yeah, I somehow wrapped my gilet around my face had my helmet on, but tucked the excess gilet up the back of the helmet, then sealed okay, it nice. with, with the ratchet, and it made this kind of like mask. So I was well chuffed with that. So there's the various yeah. ways you can do it uh, on the assumption that you've got a spare bit of clothing um, yeah. um, that you're carrying around. But uh, good stuff, mate. Good stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, have you got any idea, Jay, what you'd be doing if you weren't a pro cyclist? I, I was thinking about this earlier, actually. Um uh, and it's not even if I wasn't a pro, like if I wasn't what I'd be doing if I wasn't a pro cyclist. Yeah. But um, watching the Olympics, what what sport would you do if you if you wasn't a pro cyclist and you could be an Olympian? Because mine would be judo, I think. Judo. Yeah. What, I, why I, is that? I, Did you do judo Olympic as a kid? Cycle. No, Did... no, never, never. But every Olympic cycle, I get absolutely hooked watching judo. It's class. Well, Just... do you know what, mate? You are talking to um, a older judo. A player, fighter. Oh, yeah. what, what you, <laughs> I don't know what you call him. Back in like 1984, mate, I got to orange belt three tab. Right. That, what does that even even mean then? Well, so basically, start off with a white belt, and then every time you go for a grading, you move up one tab. So it's white belt one tab, white belt two tab, white belt three tab. It's a little red tab that you have around your white right, belt. Okay. Then you then you move on to orange to uh, yellow belt, and you go. You get your mum or your dad to buy some dye and then you dye the belt in a big on on the on the hob in a big saucepan (laughs) and then so basically did that and then i'm assist and then i went for yellow belt one two three got orange belt get some orange dye stick it in the saucepan and then um then i went uh, yeah i got to orange belt three and then i decided that i didn't like judo anymore and i like cycling um but then after orange belt it's brown belt i believe then black belt and then that's what you see everybody everybody's black belt who does the olympics mate but uh yeah yeah. well yeah i mean when i was younger i did a bit of taekwondo all right but if i'm honest with you even watching it in the olympics now i don't actually understand the rules so when i was doing taekwondo as a kid i had absolutely no clue on the rules and um so (laughs) so 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 what were you doing then if you didn't know what you were were you just like fighting somebody like yeah just just kicking through uh them little plywood boards and stuff like that but um 
blimey. A bit of sparring and stuff like that. But I, did, I didn't have a clue on the rules. And I still don't know. I was watching it earlier and I didn't have a, didn't have a clue what was actually going on. It's something to do with body and head kicks in it and punches. And, right. It does. Yeah. It's, it is amazing, yeah. though, how the Olympic Games um, does kind of reintroduce. We all know about the other sports, but it kind of reintroduces you to how great a lot, a lot all the other sports are as well. You know, that they've got their own sort of intrigue and you, you become like for a very short period of time, really fascinated by other sports and it all kind of goes away again. But I do love that. Yeah. You know, it gives us a real, a real kind of insight, doesn't it? I mean, um, I've been like, I've, oh, been, yeah. I've been enjoying look, uh, watching the skateboarding actually. I've really enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah. That's been entertaining. I think, I think the thing is as well, being a professional athlete now, you know, the amount of hard work that actually goes into it. Obviously, you know, when you're watching it, when you're not a professional athlete, you, you understand to an extent the amount of hard work that goes into it, but you don't really have, you know, a um, like a, a scale of how much hard work actually goes into it. Yeah. And I think as a professional athlete now, you can appreciate it so much more. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that's what makes it even more impressive. But um, what you're saying about getting hooked on sports, Winter Olympic sports, got absolutely hooked on uh, curling. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How, that it is. It's it's it does draw. It's like watching. Oh, it kind of like it's, it's quite calm, but it's super exciting, especially when they get really frenetic with the brushing. That's I love the brushing. Oh bit. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. It's um. Yeah. We, me and my dad. I remember watching. When was the last Winter Olympics? When would have it even been? I'm so confused with the oh, years. God. Uh, would have been 2018. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Me and my dad would spend you know afternoons screaming at the curling. When they're brushing the eyes like absolute maniacs. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we did that for three weeks. It was it was class. But yeah, um, yeah, I think yeah, it makes you appreciate how much, so much more, doesn't it? The amount of hard work that goes into it. Oh, massively, there. massively, especially I mean, even uh, if you're fighting for. Yeah, spot, yeah. I, I guess, yeah. and a lot, a lot of sports, like with 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 cycling in particular, you know, um, there's so much racing. You know, in, in, obviously got the world championships every year and stuff like that. The Olympics every four years, but for a lot of other sports. I was, I was watching when I was at Discovery the other day doing the prep for the road race. I was watching some of the rowing, and the, the commentator on the rowing, the expert, was saying that you know these rowers probably row th- just they just train and they probably row three competitions a year. You know, it's really and so the Olympics is massive. It's all or nothing. Um, whereas cycling is, it's like you know if you don't go to the Olympics, it's not the end of the world at all. But for a lot of you know the top end of ro- top end of sports like that that is it it's the be all and end all and then you know you're back to just re- doing maybe two or three races a year it's a real kind of different rhythm to competition yeah i think you kind of become like a professional trainer rather than a professional yes like player yeah you, the amount of time that you, you you're just training constantly and if it's yeah if you're doing three competitions a year suddenly yeah you just I, I don't know. I couldn't do it. No, no, it would be no. good. I mean, what kind of, actually, while we're talking about Olympics, flipping it, what a ride by Tom, eh? Tom Pidcock, flipping yeah. neck. Daft, isn't it? Daft. It's just, <clears throat> that's one way of putting it, putting it. He does make riding a bike, not just a mountain bike, but riding, well, or a cross bike, riding a road bike. It just makes it look so easy and it isn't. It, it's just, yeah. it's something almost, I mean, um, supernatural about, Tom's skills and also, mm. you know, how he can go so quickly and, you know, for such a, a small guy as well. He, he just is, and it's just and it's a force of nature, isn't it? He really, really is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I just wish he could share <coughs> his talent a little bit. Um, just give a little, just spread it a little bit yeah, out because he's almost, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's fair to say that we're on the same page here, mate. 
think you're showing off a little bit. I think you could just like just knock knock it back a notch. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> yesterday it, it didn't. It it just looked easy, didn't it? Yeah. You know, fl- Flickiger yesterday was you know pulling faces and all sorts. Pigcock were just cruising about, just mouth closed, chilling. Yeah. Yeah. He is. Yeah. It's uh, he certainly makes a really hard spot look really easy. No, he certainly does. He, cer- mm. he certainly does. I mean, talking about you know training, uh, etc. I mean and coaching how are you actually coached because i know that a lot especially at world tour level now although not exclusively many many teams when you go to a world tour team uh you use one of the coaches within the squad what's the situation with you are you, are you coached externally or with or from within the team yeah so I, i'm i'm still coached for the team so um the two years that i was on the conti team was with uh with one of the coaches that manages the Conti team. And then when I stepped up to the World Tour team, you know, stayed with the, uh, not the same coach, but, you know, mm. moved up with the World Tour coach that coaches uh, yeah. in the World Tour team. So there's there's three coaches, um, Palmer, FDJ, and I believe all the riders are coached within the team. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, yeah, it keeps it, you know, if you're not performing well, then it's not kind of on your head. It's, um, you know, if it's because of the training. You know, it can be done internally rather than getting the blame and then kicking the rider out kind of thing. So, right. yeah, kind of, um, I think it's quite a good method to have just because it keeps everyone on the same field. Yeah. I mean, and how how is that working for you? Obviously, clearly it's working really well, but, and I guess you're still so young, you haven't really got a lot of kind of coaching to kind of compare it to. So, you've, so I, I guess the kind of relationship is a good one and it's obviously bearing fruit. Yeah, yeah, I think... Um, yeah, with with uh, you know, as as young bike riders, I think the coaching as a young bike rider makes a bigger difference compared to then if you're an older bike rider yeah. and more mature. And yeah, kind of as a young bike rider, that's when you can become good or great. Um, whereas if you're getting coached, you know, as an older bike rider, where you've just kind of floated through your career, I don't think you know coaching is necessarily going to make a huge difference when you get to a really good coach. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's working. It seems to have been working fine this year, and uh, yeah, I've kind of worked well with the with the French guys. And even even when I joined the team, sort of brought some new ideas across from the way I'd been trained uh, at the academy and with Keith Lambert, and um, kind of found out what worked well for me, what didn't work well for me, and then kind of adjusted adjusted uh, depending on the situation. Um, and were they quite receptive to that sort of bringing that little I mean I'd imagine they would have been because if you look at the you know how um, the GB team you know the, the, the quality of the coaches and, the, and just the results we've had over the you know over the last sort of couple of decades now isn't it um, were they like happy to kind of listen to what you had to say? Yeah I think um, yeah it, um, it took a bit of persuading actually. Um, French the mentality is very set in their, their ways. Yeah their... that's fair to say yeah. I think it's fair to say that the French believe that their methods are better than other methods when it comes to even stuff like healthcare and stuff like that. Sure. Um, so yeah, it took a bit of persuading, but yeah, I, like I knew what worked for me, and I told them what worked for me and what didn't work for me, and we kind of found a found a level level ground where we could uh, work together. Fair enough, mate. Um- Okay, we're going to move on a little bit now. I mean, when we uh, when I was emailing the other day, I, as you will have noticed, I asked you where you were brought up um, and where you're, you're from. And you, you're from Coventry. And yeah. now, Jake Stewart, it's time for the Coventry Quiz. Right, mega. All right. Here okay. we go. The Coventry Quiz. The Coventry Quiz. Now it's time. <laughs> Did you make this? The Coventry Quiz. Uh, no, 
Um, no. I, 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 yeah, I can only just about turn my computer on and off. That right. was Niall, our producer, who is known as Mr. Jingles. He, he loves that. He spends apparently uh, two or three days of his working week coming up with his with his jingles. So um, yeah, I nice. hope you enjoyed that, mate. Especially for yeah, you. Yeah, that, I can see why he's called Mr. Jingles with you, a jingle like that. It's, the quality. It's, it's absolute. Sublime. It's absolute corker. Um, right. So there we go. <laughs> right. So it's it's a Coventry quiz. Um, I do one of these for in, in most of the podcasts. But we're not here to catch you out. It's right, it's okay. multiple choice, okay? So there's no like big press. So we've got you know you've got uh, four choices. It's four questions, uh, four choices, and and we'll kick off. Okay. So question number one, Jake, on the Coventry quiz: What animal? Sorry, what animals appear on the Coventry coat of arms? Okay. So what animals appear on the Coventry coat of arms? There's four. Is it A? There's four? Yeah, there's there's Jeez. four, mate, yeah. I thought there was one. No, well, no. Uh, right, yeah, okay. the main one, there's, <laughs> yeah, it's the main, it's the kind of big one. Um, so, oh, okay. are there A, two eagles, one lion, and one tiger, one eagle, one stork, one lion, and one elephant, two eagles, one lion, and one elephant, or two lions, one eagle, and one elephant? Well, the only the only animal that I thought was on there was an elephant. You are correct. And you've just given me three three options that all yeah. include elephant. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, what were the three that included the elephant? So, uh, one eagle, one stork, one lion, and the elephant. And the elephant is in the middle. Okay. Yeah. Um, two eagles, one lion, and one elephant, or two lions, one eagle, and one elephant. So you've whittled it down to B, C, or D. <laughs> Right, what was the one? Two eagles, an elephant, and a... And a lion. I'm going to go with that one, but honestly, I, I only thought there was an elephant on the air. It's correct, mate. You are correct. Um, actually, I think one. I think the other one might not be an eagle. I think it might be a phoenix, because underneath this particular bird, there's a little mini bonfire. So I think, <laughs> I think it's actually uh, a phoenix, but that was getting a bit too complicated. So you started well. You're uh, one out of one. Moving on now to question number two. Okay, so Coventry is the most central city in England, Jake, but how far is it away from England's geographical centre in Leicestershire? Okay, uh, is it A, 12 miles, B, 14 miles, C, 16 miles, or D, 19 miles away from England's true geographical centre? Hmm. And actually, it's, it's lovely. When you look at it on a map, it's really quite satisfying because it is so central. It's quite quite beautiful, really. Yeah, well, my my uh, my secondary school was actually called Heart of England. Wow, there you go. Yeah, I didn't yeah, even... Yeah. There you go. What a, lo- yeah. what a lovely little bit of synergy. So, um, so yeah. Um, but, so, to, to Leicestershire. Yeah, because England's geographical centre apparently is somewhere in Leicestershire, but it's not that far away from Coventry, which is no. the most central city. So, is it 12 miles... Away, 14 miles away, 16 miles away, or 19 miles away? I'm going to say, because pretty much you can literally jump on the motorway and you're near enough near Leicestershire within 20 minutes, probably from where my parents live. So I'm going to say 19 miles. It's incorrect, mate. It's 12 miles. It's very, very near. Yeah, only 12. It's okay. It's early days. Well, it's not. We're halfway through the quiz. But, um, you know, but yeah, amazing. It's very, very near to the geographical centre of England. So moving on to question number three. Uh, I like this one. In 1994, no, it's 1944. (laughs) 
Right. In 1944, Coventry became the first city in the world to become twinned with another city, which is pretty amazing. Oh, I didn't know that. Right, okay, yeah. Um, but which city was it? I mean, since then, Coventry has twinned with about 30 different, or the different areas in Coventry are twinned all over the world. But what was the first city that Coventry became twinned with, thus creating the first, yeah, set of twin cities in the world? Was it A, Sarajevo, B, St. Etienne, C, Stalingrad, which is now known, of course, as uh, Volgograd, or D, Warsaw in Poland? So Jeez. Sarajevo, oh, okay. yeah, Sarajevo, Saint Etienne, Stalingrad, or Warsaw. See, before you said that they'd been twinned with like thirty odd cities, I was mm. trying to think back to the amount of times that I've done town center site, like town center uh, town sign sprints. Yes, to, to the Coventry sign. Yeah. It says it on every sign, but I mean, that'll be the most recent one, not the first one, wouldn't it? Well, basically, like Coventry, the city itself is, but then like each little each little borough, so that there's little places mm. within Coventry that are called other things, I guess, and yeah. they're all twinned as well. Um, right, okay. But um, but the main Coventry is just twinned with this place. Right, okay. Um, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna go Warsaw because I, I think there's a Polish flag on right. the uh, on the sign. You know when it says twinned with. Indeed. Well, do you know what? You're nearly nearly right. It's actually Russia. Which isn't oh, that right, far okay. away? Well, Stalin- Stalingrad in Russia, uh, because okay. basically in 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 1944, as we know, uh, there was a Coventry was really you know really badly bombed, and and also the people of Stalingrad um, had a lot of issues as well after the invasions, and the people of Coventry wanted to reach out to their fellow citizens and form a bond, and and they did, and that's what they did, and they created the first ever twinning to share their kind of experiences of the war and hardship. And then it kind of developed from there. So, uh, yeah, it's quite a, quite a cool story, that, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Um, sadly, though, you didn't get that right. So you've got one out of three so far. You, but you can redeem yourself with this final question in the Coventry quiz. Yeah, okay. Jake, question number four. What is inside a Coventry God cake? Coventry okay. God cake? Yeah. Is it A, potatoes and steak, B, apples and custard, C, sweet mincemeat, like in a mince pie, or D, cream? I've never even heard of a commentary god cake. You know, you wow. know, if you, you know, like if you go to, I don't know, like a French restaurant and the speciality of that region will always be on the menu. Yeah. Um, it's not even as if we have English special, like English cuisine restaurants. We it? don't, what? we just, it just, we, we're fish yeah. and chips, pies. And we chips. don't, you're Curry. right. We, we, we're, a, we're a nation of, of other people's dishes. Like, I mean, Italian, yeah. Indian food, Chinese food, uh, but you're quite right. But um, on this occasion, right, yeah, I, I, um, I must admit, I've never heard of them. I mean, I've heard no. of quite a lot of local cakes and stuff because I'm a big cake fan, but mm. uh, this one is new to me. Cake. The fact that you've just said cake, I'm thinking sweet. Good. But, um, yeah. Yeah. So is it? Yeah. What was the apple one? Apple. apple so basically, uh, yeah. A potatoes and steak. B apples and custard. C sweet mince meat like in a mince pie. Or D cream. I'm gonna go apples and custard. I've, oh. I've got no reason as to why. But. No, nearly, mate. But it's actually sweet mince meat. Oh. Okay. <laughs> oh. And apparently they're triangular. And basically, the the triangle was to signify the joining of of roads from various kind of trades, like farmer would meet uh, like a tradesman, and then the, the, so basically it's to do with the shape of trade. 
So it's like a triangular little, yeah, like a triangular puff pastry with sweet mincemeat inside. So it's like a triangle, a triangular mince pie. There you go, mate. Yeah, I've just Googled it. I've never seen one of them in my life. I've never seen one either, mate. So um, I'm hoping then not just a work of fiction because you can't believe everything you see on the internet. And you never know. This might be a fake Wikipedia Coventry page. Who knows? (laughs) I mean, the Coventry Telegraph here, the 1st of May 2015, the world famous Coventry cake. Is, is, the, is, is the headline. Right. World famous. I mean, the fact that you're from Coventry and I'm, well, I'm from kind of England, uh, and yeah. we're both collectively. Let's, do you know what? Let's bring Niall in. Uh, Niall, uh, our producer. Uh, Niall, have you heard of the Coventry cake, mate? Because we just want to get a bit of general consensus. I know you're from Ireland, but you've lived in, the, in England for a while. Have you heard of the, 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 uh, the, go, the Coventry God cake? I have never heard of the Coventry God cake. Well, if anybody's listening to this podcast, please get involved in the comments. I don't think there is any, but maybe get involved on on uh, Instagram or Twitter and uh, send pictures. Uh, anyway, you've got 25% right in the Coventry quiz. Well done, Jake. Cheers. Thank you. Okay, mate. Okay. A little bit of a round of applause. We do have a, uh, a very... Ooh. That's quite a long round of applause. It sounded like it was from like it was from Wimbledon or something like that, and it was, but it was raining at the same time. Anyway, um, Jake, what's your first memory of riding a bike? I, to be fair, you, you know when um, you know if it's like if you, if you've been told a story so many times, it kind of becomes your memory of it. Do you, yeah. do you know that? Yeah. So it, it wouldn't I, even yeah. be yeah. So I don't actually. I wouldn't even be able to recall my first memory of riding a bike, but. Probably the first like recollection of riding a bike in terms of the amount of times I've been told this story by my father yeah. would be um yeah, I got a little bike for my for my birthday. It was a ladybird bike. It was like red with black spots on it. Yeah. Um and I absolutely loved it. Riding it up and down the up and down the street. And uh I think I also got a pair of wellies for my birthday the same year, so I was riding up and down the street in my wellies on this <laughs> ladybird bike. Brilliant. And, uh, yeah, and, um, uh, yeah, my dad had said to me, yeah, we need, we need to go to my, my grandparents who were living around the corner. And, uh, I just turned to him and he was just saying, on my bike, on my bike. And apparently that's all that I would say for, you know, a good week was just on my bike. That's all I wanted to do. That's, that's, so, and, and, and here you are a professional yeah. bicyclist, um, kind of 15, 16 years later. I mean, how ultimately, when was your first race then? When did you kind of realise that you loved it that much that you wanted to race? How did you get into racing? Was that through your parents or was it through friends? How did that work? Yeah, um, well, I started off in triathlon. Uh, oh, wow. I, hate, okay. I didn't know that. I hated right. swimming and running. Okay. It was awful at it. Um, bike, like riding my bike was the only thing that I was half decent at in triathlon. So uh, kind of carried on with, with that, joined the local cycling club, got a... Uh, got a road bike from uh, the local shop and then um yeah so that was probably when i was like 11 12 yeah um yeah we was, was just riding my bike and enjoying it kind of thing and to be fair i never really thought that i wanted to be a professional professional cyclist probably until i don't know 15 16 when kindly when kind of something clicked and uh, i wanted to take my training seriously and yeah do things properly but yeah it wasn't as if when I first started riding a bike, I wanted to be a professional bike rider, and just I just enjoyed riding my bike. I mean, and uh, you kind of 
you rode quite a lot on the track as well, didn't you? Kind of was the track first, or was the track second, or did what? What kind of came first? Because uh, I know a lot, a lot of young riders now. There, especially if they're part of the talent program, they're putting them on the track ordinarily, aren't they? They're just going to see how they do. But how did that kind of pan out for you in terms of disciplines? Yeah, um, started on to be fair, started on road and cyclocross mainly, right? Um, and kind of yeah, just my my dad realised from a kind of early stage that if you know to be a good bike rider you needed to have some kind of bike handling skills and I wasn't really very good at bike handling and still not really that good anyway but um it kind of yeah it you know it, it kind of pushed me down the cyclocross route to to learn them skills and whatnot and then uh yeah when um when I finally said no I don't want to do cyclocross because it's cold wet muddy and not very good at it we decided to go onto the track instead because it was, you know, warm. It was inside during the winter um, and stuff like that. So yeah, I did did mainly rode in, rode in track for like the majority of my my time as like a youth rider and junior rider, and then yeah, joined British Cycling and did a lot on the track anyway. As uh, under sixteen junior, beginning of under twenty three, and then kind of finally focused on road my second year under twenty three. And I understand you were helped to a degree by the Dave Rayner Fund as well. How how did that come about? Yeah, so um, obviously my time with British Cycling as an under-23 rider, I was coached by Keith Lambert at the time, who has a big connection anyway with the Dave Rayner Fund. Um, I think he's one of the chairman of it or treasurer or whatever. Yeah. And uh, when I left the, the GB programme to go to Grippalmer FDJ Devo team, he basically said to me, like, well, apply for the, the Dave Rayner Fund because we, we want to help you and support you and uh, yeah, be part of, you know, you growing up as a bike rider. Um, so, yeah, I was kind of pushed into it for, from Keith Lambert as, a, you know, just have that support from them as a bit of international support and, you know, financial support when we needed it kind of thing. Yeah, I mean it's amazing how how much I was just I was just earlier on I was looking I've been to to the a couple of Dave Rayner fun dinners and his his obviously Dave Rayner himself was a chap that I raced against back in the early nineties lovely lovely chap an amazingly talented bike rider but the amount of money that they've actually raised and put towards both you know um, the amount of money they've actually put put towards supporting riders over a million pounds now it's amazing isn't it how 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 they've helped you know just give uh, give riders that little bit of a step up yeah i think it's impressive really the, the amount that they're funded from it um obviously you know that's probably the biggest fund that there is in the uk for for cyclists moving abroad obviously there's a couple of other ones in memory of other bike riders that exist yeah. in the uk but obviously dave rayner fund is probably the the one that's heard of the most and pushed the most by uh by the media and stuff like that but um yeah the amount of money that they've raised for it and just supporting the amount of riders that they support every year financially is a uh, is pretty staggering really no it certainly is i mean just back to the the kind of modern pro peloton again um jake there's a lot of talk um i mean you you're involved in a really high profile uh incident back with uh, back in the Chalet peloire weren't you with uh, with nasa buhani and in terms of kind of safety uh, and he was subsequently banned for it but what about the general kind of hubris, the general kind of talk about, because I've, inter- I've spoken to so many riders a bit, you know, probably in their 30s now, early 30s, riders have been around for a while, talking about the shift in the, in the peloton, the kind of speed, the kind of risk factor. But for you being such a, a young rider, what's your kind of perception and, and what's your take on 
on the kind of safety aspect. Let's kind of move to one side, like finishing straights and barriers, but just the responsibility of the riders and the bunch in the, in terms of the way they carry themselves. I mean, what's your view on on the kind of modern peloton and the way it kind of the way it is on the road? In you know, when uh, you've got a lot on the line, what, what's it like? Yeah, I think um, well, it's kind of one of them things. Like I've the I've heard, like listened to a lot of podcasts around rider safety and spoken with quite a few guys about it, and it's kind of the analogy has been given that obviously you know in Formula One it's got so much faster in such a short space of time, yeah, and cars are so much faster and whatnot. But the safety and the you know safety protocols have had to keep up with the 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 shift in speed and the advancement in technology and all this. And it's the same with cycling. You know, cycling is getting so much faster every year. You know, there's so much more technology being developed that means that we can ride bikes faster, that bikes travel faster and all this. But kind of the it feels like the safety protocols and what's keeping us as riders safe from a rules perspective and, you know, for for organisers to follow hasn't really followed suit in the same manner that it has done with f1 and i think you know there's a bigger difference between the uh between now and you know say 20 years ago yeah you know the rules and regulations are still the same as 20 years ago but actually now the peloton's traveling what well, i don't even know the statistics but five or six kilometers per hour quicker over a five-hour race or whatever that's um, a, uh, yeah that's a that's a big margin that's a really i've never really heard anybody um put that into perspective like that but um but that's a it's, a it's really food for thought, isn't it? But what about, I mean, there's the rules side of it, which clearly do need updating and have been, sadly, because of uh, not because of any kind of sense of prescience or it's mm. because they, they, the rule changes have come as a reaction to catastrophic incidents and crashes. But what about being in the peloton, moving around the bunch, you know, and, and how stressful it often looks, especially in the classics. I know you haven't ridden a, a grand tour yet. Hopefully that's going to be very soon, mate. But what what is it like? Is it, was it something you got used, used to straight away? What's your perception? Do you think it's dangerous or do you think it's just, it's just that there's no kind of hierarchy anymore? What's your take on it from, uh, and again, taking into account, you are still a very young rider, but what's your view on that? Yeah, I think, um, I think, it, the kind of rider I am being, I enjoy the classics racing and uh, that's where I kind of excel is, you know, classics racing is you're fighting for 200 odd K for the, for a good wheel. You're fighting in the bunch for 200 K um, into cobble sections, into climbs and, and all this. And then when you come from, you know, a classics race into, I don't know, a, a French race that's a point one, or even, you know, a, a race that's not as highly, um, it hasn't got as high stakes. It, it's a lot easier and a lot less stressful. Um, but I think, you know, for, for us British riders, the kind of racing that we grow up with in the UK, with crit racing and all this, it kind of sets us up pretty well going mm. into the pro peloton with, you know, being comfortable, moving around a, a bunch, being comfortable, you know, knocking shoulders and, uh, and stuff like this in the bunch. So I think, you know, for, for a British rider actually going into yeah, the the world top peloton and fighting for these positions into cobbled sections and whatnot. Actually, it's not really that much of a um, you know a big step for us because we've just done it the whole way through uh, youth and junior and kind sure. of that's how we've been brought up racing. But I think yeah, it's um, yeah, obviously, it's the um, it's all well and good fighting for positions within the bunch. Is when you know there's there's external factors. Obviously, we're racing on open roads. Yep. Uh, well, the public highway. 
yeah. um, where you've got roundabouts, you've got bollards, you've got traffic calming measures and all this. And then, yeah, that's when it does become a bit more dangerous because obviously we can't just take out a roundabout off the road for, for a race and stick it back on the road afterwards. So that's when it does become a bit more bit more challenging. But I mean, yeah, as riders, we just need to, um, you know, be respectful of the, the environment that we're racing in and choosing when is a good time and not a good time to be throwing our weight around in the peloton. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fair point. It's a fair point. Um, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about, we're coming to kind of heading towards the kind of uh, the conclusion of the pod, mate, but I, I just wanted to touch on, um, it, it, for such a young guy, you're, you're clearly very confident in the way you carry yourself uh, and you speak, you know, with, um, you speak really eloquently, if that's the right word to use, and passionately on social media about, the broader issues outside of cycling there's one or two guys that do that but not many i mean is that i can't i kind of like that there's it's really really quite refreshing i think teo gagan hart as well is is another young chap who's really happy to kind of use his profile Mm. as a as a sports person to to kind of talk about the things in society that really matter um and especially when making an impression on, on young people um that's something you've kind of kind of just take and do is is that the kind of person you are because I, I i really quite like it yeah i think um it's just kind of you know i've always obviously growing up we have role models in sport and whatnot and uh you know these i, I kind of realized as i was getting older that the role models that i was following as i was growing up were big big images but they weren't using you know their platform necessarily in a in a good or a positive manner um right. and you know when you look at you look at i don't know marcus rashford who has a huge following and a huge platform and he's using it to um open people's eyes to the bigger issues in the world and he's using it not even politically but he's um yeah he's he's addressing issues on his platforms that that people need to have their attention brought to and it kind of you know as i grew up and my following has grown and i've had more a bigger platform to to share my views then i've kind of wanted to to use that platform to um to be a voice of you know not just a cyclist but as a as someone that can you know kind of be influential no that's, i think i think it's really lovely i mean there's a there's a few people who say that you know sport and politics i mean this isn't necessarily politics this is just doing the right thing a lot of the time mm. isn't it? you're not saying vote x or y are you? you're just saying well this needs to be with this needs to be looked at this you know why in issues of diversity we're so far behind etc etc um and and i i do think sport has a role in that to a certain degree um and and it is lovely that that there are young athletes people in positions where they can influence doing it so um fair play to you mate Um, yeah and okay step just to bring this to a close mate just stepping out of the cycling world for a minute um maybe not into your garden let's step into a different environment than that um (laughs) What what brings you enjoyment outside of cycling, mate? What what do you love to do that makes you that takes you to a great place, bud? I just think, yeah, for me, it's just being being at home with my with my girlfriend and dogs. I think that's the biggest, um, you know, thing. We we spend so much time away, you know, out on the road racing, and then so much time away from families and friends and stuff like this. And uh, yeah, just being back home with my dog and my girlfriend, uh, going out on dog walks, just doing normal things is kind of what brings me the biggest biggest enjoyment away from the bike fair enough mate fair enough uh oh i can hear oh whoa whoa that i think 
uh, is was that a random question generator? I'm not too sure, but I believe, uh, yeah, that was a um, a jingle that basically exploded. <laughs> <laughs> oh god! So I'm just uh, slowly walking over to the random question generator, which is I'm going to have to use a fire extinguisher. It's starting to smoke, actually. Um, anyway, I've got the uh, I've got the slip off. Um, well, and we'll wrap we'll wrap the pod up with this question to you, Jake. It's been an absolute corker. Thanks for being so so generous with your time and so open, mate. But but here we go. Um, there's a time machine at the end of a one-way street. You can travel to any period of time ever, past or the future. But Jake, and this is crucial, it's a one-way ticket. Wow. Where would you go, or would you stay put and just walk away? Oh, that's, that's a, a good, good one, one, isn't it? Yeah, it's a corker. Yeah. Right. So you could go to the future and you could see what the future is like, but I have a feeling it could be pretty sh- Yeah. Just the way the world is currently going. So a bit dark, I think, a bit dark yeah. but fair enough. I mean, hopefully, yeah. I mean, let, let's... Okay, that's fair enough, mate. You're being honest. <laughs> so if, if I was to get in it, I think I'd, I'd definitely go to the past. Okay. And, um. Yeah, I'm just kind of trying to think what era I'd want to go to because I think um, I think I'd go to the 80s. Okay, nice. I don't know a specific year, but I reckon the 80s. I like pretty into my 80s music. Um, right, and I'd love to have seen been old enough to see Queen live. So, oh mate, I saw Queen live in 1986 on the Works tour at Wembley. They were my fav- favorite band growing up as a as a, as a young kid. Yeah, and, uh, my, my oh my god, it's amazing. He saw him at Nebworth. Oh when, right, uh, okay. He tells a story. He saw him at Nebworth, right? It was when um, it was when England were in the World Cup or something. Okay. And uh, he had a little portable TV. He took the battery out of the van that they t- that they'd taken to Nebworth to take the uh, to plug the TV in whilst <laughs> I was watching Queen at Nebworth. And I mean, the crowd at Nebworth was something ridiculous. It was like massive, wasn't it? Yeah, huge. And uh, yeah, it was the World Cup. I don't know what round it was or whatever, but basically there's a Queen concert watching the World Cup as well. And there were so many people crowded around this tiny little portable TV with the battery from the van that actually it cut out the satellite. So, yeah. Oh, bloody hell, fire. That's amazing. Yeah. That's a, yeah, what, a, so, what a corking story. So yeah. you, would you like maybe go to that gig with your dad? Yeah, I think, I think yeah. Yeah, I reckon something like that. 80s to see Queen live, Nebworth, something like that. Yeah. I reckon I'd go back towards the eighties. And but it then, was such good music in the eighties as oh, well. Oh, mate, um, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm a big a big Queen fan, but uh, I, I, I'm a big fan of the Smiths as well. Yeah, I yeah. really really like the Smiths. But the the eighties, the Cure. When you look yeah. back, the eighties. Howard some, Jones. Yes. Oh yeah, Howard Jones. Class. Um, Thompson Twins. Yeah. Um, yeah. Rama even. Um, they came up on a question on the pub quiz last night. Now we've gone off on a right oh, tangent now, aren't we? But, yeah, yeah, yeah. but, but you do remember though, that you wouldn't be able to come back. You'd be stuck in the eighties, but then you'd, you'd eventually end up in 2021 at some point, wouldn't you? You'd just be like kind of 25, 30 years behind. So it's not too bad, is it? And to be fair, if you went back to the eighties, are you, are you retaining all the knowledge that you have now? Oh, I don't know. If you um, go back in time. No, that would be weird. Cause that would distort the timeline too much. Right, okay. Oof, because what I, I was going to say is, if you go back to the 80s, then you could prevent coronavirus and all this shit that's going on at the moment. Ooh. And then it's going to be nice for in the future, climate change and all that crap as well. Bloody hell, mate. So you'd, you'd so, have a proper I mean, agenda, wouldn't you? Okay, yeah, let, let's I, yeah. say that you you are you, so you're 21-year-old Jake back in the, in the 80s, but you... 
by the time you got to, to now, you'd be a lot older, maybe like a professor of something, and you could yeah. affect change. I like the sound of that, mate. Brilliant yeah. stuff. So, well, yeah, we'll go back to the 80s. Great stuff. Well, that was a – what a cracking answer. Um, what a lovely answer, mate. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you, uh, uh, Jake, mate. Um, what, what's next on the, on the race calendar for you? Uh, yeah, I'll go, go out to tour of Poland next week. Uh, and the next week, I've got Poland, Hamburg, Big Bank, and then hopefully World Championships. So, um, yeah, it's oh, pretty nice, nice actually. Oh, of course, in in Leuven, in in Flanders, yeah. I'm I'm hoping yeah. to be there in some capacity. So, um, fingers crossed, mate, because that obviously your kind of attributes as a rider, uh, you'd think you'd be a bit of a shoe in for the GB team. They're all being well. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I think all being good, we've got a pretty decent team going, and uh, you know, I imagine we'll be building a team around Pidcock and looking for a result there. So, um, fantastic. Yeah, I think it'll be pretty decent crack. Fantastic stuff, mate. Jake, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Take care and look after that garden. Send me some pics and catch up with you soon. Take care, mate. Mega, thank you. Cheers, mate. Fantastic stuff. I reckon given his form already this season, although not necessarily in the Coventry quiz, as that was quite poor, Jake has got a real shot at playing his part in the Worlds in Leuven this year. Fingers crossed for him there and for the rest of the season. Thanks to Perry App Gwyneth for the podcast theme tune and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe and rate the pod and why not recommend it to Tom Pitcock if you see him greedily riding all types of bikes and not sharing any of his talent with the rest of the peloton. And finally, a massive thanks again to Jake for joining us on the podcast today. All the best to him in the future and in the past. If he does take a trip in that one-way time machine, then if he does so, we'd already know, I think, wouldn't we? Cheers all, stay safe and goodbye. Hmm, bit of a quandary that one. Thank you.